Hello and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and my partner in crime, Andy's here with me again. What's up, Andy? How you doing, Michael? How you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. You got that accent warmed up? Oh, I'm, it's, it's been on my tongue all day. I've been so <laughs> thinking in this accent for two days. <laughs> been eating nothing but prosciutto and provolone I had for so, the last... <laughs> so much of mozzarella in my pocket. <laughs> But guys, we're glad you could join us today. And of course, if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that like, subscribe, share button, and leave a comment. Let us know if it's your first episode or what you thought of this episode, or if you have a case suggestion. Leave it below or check it out. This is your first episode. Let me catch you up. Over the past two weeks, we released a two-part episode covering the murder of former Texas media mogul and multi-millionaire Stephen Beard. Now, this case was not only the benchmark for future husband murdering gold diggers, but it was so damn near cinematic that it also spawned the hit TV series Snapped on Oxygen. It was the pilot episode, as a matter of fact. But, guys, you know, I don't like to dwell on last week. If you know me here, I'm, I'm out with the old, in with the new. We got some new shit to talk about today. Some mob shit. Oh, it's time to get into that mafioso. You know, we are so fond of the mob here at TCG. The mob episodes are honestly some of my favorite. They really are. I think it, I think it still has something to do with y'all just founding in Vegas and just, just being in that Sin right? City and You're being just like, you know, a little closer to it. It's just in. It's just in the city here. It's, it's just in, in the air. It's, it's just, in the, just feels <laughs> baked in here. <laughs> they built this city. <laughs> <laughs> But that's right, Creepers, uh, we're going to warm up our best Joe Pesci voices because this week here on TCG, we're taking a look at one of the most ruthless, deadly, and downright terrifying wise guys to ever walk the streets of New York, and that is no exaggeration. This guy goes by the name of Roy DeMeo. Pass DeMeo. Pass DeMeo, Andy. Uh, but also uh, another less funny moniker, the Butcher of Brooklyn. So careful what you say about him. Not, yeah. Not, he, he's gone now. Spoiler alert. But, doesn't uh, look as good on a business card. It, it doesn't. <laughs> Especially when it's not from a grocery store. <laughs> well, you, you got to, he has two business cards, right? One has Roy DeMeo, one has the butcher. It just depends <laughs> on who you're working with. Yeah, it's like, who, who are you trying right? to hire? <laughs> oh, you want this card. <laughs> you want this guy. <laughs> exactly. But uh, Roy is an Italian-American mobster in the Gambino crime family. Roy quickly became one of the family's most brutal and efficient hitmen throughout the 1970s all the way into the early 80s, all while operating one of the most lucrative and successful stolen car rings in modern history. Uh, he led a notorious group of outcasts who called themselves the DeMeo Crew. DeMeo. Just, just go. Like, we don't, Always we don't really in a have few with helmets. <laughs> we're not a miracle crew. We're not a miracle whip crew. We're we are a DeMeo Crew. <laughs> we are a Mayo Crew. Don't not come in miracle here. DeMeo. Don't come in here with that miracle whip shit. <laughs> but all jokes aside, uh, the DeMeo Crew was a vicious group of killers who gained infamy even amongst the mafia due to their extensive body count and their gruesome disposal methods that were coined the Gemini Method. It has been said that the crew, with DeMeo as the key contributor, obviously, claimed as many as 200 homicides. Honestly, if it's even close to that number, holy shit. Oh yeah, it's even if it's half of that, that's still a yeah. large number of homicides for one crew. There's maf- yeah, there's mafia hitmen who have retired with, you know, 10 hits on their belt, and they're, you Prolific. Know, <laughs> prolific, exactly. Yeah. They're talking about 200 here. Um, but... Speaking of Roy, there's even a recording of the former Gambino crime boss stating that DeMeo himself had killed close to 40 men by the end of 1982. That's just like sanctioned hits. That, 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 that's sanctioned right. hits that the boss knows about. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
So with a trail of money and bodies that would rival that of the Iceman Richard Kuklinski, Roy DeMeo was the kind of guy that struck fear into other killers. No joke. His rise through the ranks may not have been very long or prosperous, but in the decade in which Roy DeMeo and his crew set up shop in the infamous Gemini Lounge, the sanitation department would have a lot more than just your standard bar waste making its way into the local landfills. This guy, this guy was a wild card. He kind of did his own thing, Andy. And you know, guys who, who behave this way, even in organized crime, or especially in organized crime, rather, they don't last long. Yeah, you don't like they to don't. have a they wild burn out. card in the in the in the crime family. You, th- nobody does. Nobody. That's yeah. the problem. The other wise guys don't like having this wild card because you put everyone at jeopardy. Oh yeah, when you can't trust one of your guys, like then you you start running into problems. It's like, who did you kill this week? Why? Exactly. Exactly. Even John Gotti wanted nothing to do with this dude. Oh yeah, Gotti himself proposed. was like, this guy's got a goal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But I think we teased this wise guy enough, Andy. Uh, let's roll the Sopranos theme. Let's get into this. You know we can't afford that, Michael. God damn it. <laughs> roll whatever I made. Woke up this morning, got yourself a gun. Your mama always said you'd be the chosen one. She said you're one in a million. You gotta burn a shot. You were Born under a bad side with blue moon in your eyes. Woke up this morning, all that love had gone. Your papa never told you about right and wrong. But you're, you're looking good, baby. I believe you're feeling fine. Shame about it. Born under a bad sign with a blue moon in your eyes. Singing now, woke up this morning. Woke up this morning, blue moon in your eyes. Woke up this morning, got a blue moon in your eyes. Got a blue moon in your eyes. All right, so we might as well start at the beginning. Roy Albert DeMeo was born in 1942 to an Italian working-class family in Brooklyn, New York, and would graduate from James Madison High School in 1959. Fun fact, one of his graduating classmates was none other than Bernie Sanders. Roy, I swear, if you keep copying my math homework and you keep leaving blood on it, I'm not going to keep letting you do this, Roy. This is not fair, and I am not going to be part of this scheme anymore. <laughs> they must have been best buds, I swear. <laughs> Shut your pansy mouth, Bernie. <laughs> Bernie. I swear to God. I knew you were going to do that Bernie impression, Andy. I, you had to do it. When I, I saw Bernie in the timeline, I was like, God, I hope he does a Bernie impression. Get the Bernie impression going. You should just do every impression as Bernie episode. I thought I was going to be talking with my hands a lot this episode, but not like this. <laughs> not like this. But uh, throughout high school and his late teens, Roy would start to make a living working for local loan sharks in the Brooklyn area. Typical for these mobsters this is how they get in. He's not. He was never one to shy away from violence. Someone who didn't like taking no for an answer. He quickly made a name for himself at a very young age. Uh, after graduating, DeMeo would hold a few legitimate jobs while still trying to work his way into the organized crime world even working briefly as an apprentice in a local butcher shop for a while. That probably didn't do anything good for him, where he would unfortunately learn uh, some of the gruesome skills that he would later use in his killings. 
So at least his moniker was more like self-proclaimed. He's like, I mean, I got some I'm experience. The, I'm the butcher. And, I mean, I wore an apron before. <laughs> yeah, it's harmless enough. I got I got butcher I experience. Once a butcher, always a butcher. I know how to swing a cleaver. Yeah. <laughs> it's no stranger to a cleaver. Uh, but Roy would get married shortly after high school and end up having three children. And like fellow mafia hitman Richard Kuklinski, Roy would maintain his marriage and family throughout his murderous career. That's one of those things that I find very surprising. If there is a bright spot in these men's lives, it is, it is the way that they're able to separate their family life from their work life. Yeah, they can you know compartmentalize what I mean? very well. I think the Sopranos did that pretty well. Mm, yeah. I mean, yeah, Tony, he's a boss, right? It's more focused on Tony, but look at a lot of the other guys. A lot of the other guys spent a lot of time, like Bobby, for instance. Mm-hmm. Bobby managed his home life and his mafia life very well. Some of these guys do, but it's really surprising with this guy because he's an absolute sociopath. Oh, yeah. And he's an absolute wild card running around with blood all over him half I mean, the time. <laughs> my man's a serial killer. Let's Let's not get it twisted. Um, but DeMeo would get his first taste of organized crime world when he became an associate of the Lucchese crime family. I think it's the Lucchese. Is it the Lucchese? Lucchese. Oh my God, I've been saying it wrong all these years. The Lucchese crime family, another of the five families in New York who was controlling most of the automotive crime in Brooklyn at the time. They were making some serious money on this, on these uh, stolen cars, dude. During his early time with the Lucchese family, uh, Roy would learn the ins and outs of the stolen car industry and would make many of the connections that he would later utilize in his own schemes for future profits. Yeah, remember Joe, Joe if you remember Goodfellas, Joe mm-hmm. Pesci was from the Lucchese family. I think ah. uh, I think one of the other ones from the Gambino family, so yeah, it's... Okay, You gotta okay. think, of, it's Joe Pesci, that's, that's, that's whose family this is. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, that puts it into perspective. One of my favorite movies, man, Goodfellas. But it would be in 1966 that Roy would catch the eye of Anthony Gaggy, a soldier in the Gambino crime family. Gaggy saw the potential of what a no-nonsense type of guy like Roy would be for their organization and would offer him a job working for the Gambinos. It's all downhill from there. Or uphill for a little while, at least. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, guess like, so. Financially uphill, morally yeah. way downhill. Morally. <laughs> <laughs> he also plateaued quite a bit in the family. Uh, some of the upper bosses didn't trust him. Oh, yeah, when but, you start looking at like they're like, Mm-hmm. We can't give this guy a suit, right? <laughs> he's, a, he's a psycho. But Gaggy loved him. Gaggy always spoke up for him. Now, if some of you are unfamiliar with the Gambino crime family, they are actually one of the more well-known and publicly recognized groups of organized crime in U.S. history. Named after former boss Carlo Gambino, the family gained a significant amount of public infamy during the highly publicized trial of the Teflon Don himself, John Gotti. Oh, we're going to, after doing this whole case, we're going to have to do a whole episode on Gotti. Are like, we? He, he is such an f- interesting and fun character I know, I know you love Gotti, Andy. He's just so, he's just so goddamn charming. <laughs> we make murder charming here, Michael, right? That's true. That's true. Why have we not done Gotti? He's well, the, he, yeah, come on. He, he's a charming murderer as far as murderers go, I must say. Yeah, he's so goddamn, so, just so charming. <laughs> so charming. Uh, but throughout the late 60s, Roy would continue to grow his underworld connections and build more of a name for himself as a ruthless loan shark along with starting to lay the groundwork for what would eventually become his extremely successful auto theft ring. Now, during this time, Roy would begin putting together the crew that he would eventually run with for the remainder of his days with the organization, which wasn't that long, uh, starting with a 16-year-old marijuana dealer named Christopher Rosenberg. Now, we got we got a Christopher in the story, Michael. We We're, do. We got a Christopher. He's not a Montesanti. But he's a still a Christopher. Uh, he actually plays a very similar Christopher role, though, in the story. He does play a very very similar role, except for he doesn't become a made man, right? Because Christopher he's not get Italian. Chance. Yeah, Chris, well, Christopher, yeah, he's not he's not an Italian. Christopher Rosenberg, uh, that, he, that is a he Jewish, Jewish name. Yes. Uh, and he doesn't get, he his, like, his career does not 
you know, skyrocket. No, but yeah, no, he has no. a very similar story that Christopher and the Sopranos did. When I was, when I was putting this together, I was like, oh, Michael's going to see this. Uh, yes. I'm a huge Sopranos fan, so I love those connections. And you know they had to draw a lot of inspiration. That show did from all of these true stories. You know, they probably took a little bit here, a little bit from this family, a little bit from this. Oh, yeah. You know. But taking him under his wing at a very young age, Christopher would slowly start to form into Roy's own little criminal protege. Aw, a little psycho Aww. of his own. Look at Look you. At that. Uh, baby's first stabbing. Look yeah. at you. But I think Roy, they kind of have this younger kid that they grow this affinity for because, you know, these men, like I said, they are family men, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't want their family to be part of this world. To an extent, right? yeah. So even when a lot of times when these men have sons, it's it's way later on, if at all, they involve them in this life. Yeah. Because they know how the majority of them end up. Yeah, you get that so many times. You've seen that in a lot of movies and stories about like the mafia guy who doesn't want their son to be a part of right. it. They want, a, they want a better life for them. Like a, exactly. A life that's not full of looking over your shoulder in fear. And- right. But on the other hand, because so much of their life is wrapped up in these operations and these, these constant ongoings and watching their back and whatnot, they end up spending more time with their with their associates Mm-hmm. Than they do, and I think that's why these these family ties in these in these crime families is so strong because they they are more family oriented people, but the career paths that they've chosen have pushed them outside of their family, so yeah. they create these other families. You oh know yeah, what I'm saying like their own little even, surrogate even a psycho families. like Roy. Yeah, like I said, their own little surrogate families that they can kind of yeah, kind of compartmentalize that life with. Yeah, yeah. So when Roy found Christopher, he was initially selling drugs behind a nearby gas station. Christopher would take DeMeo up on an offer of a loan that would give him the ability to buy and sell in larger quantities. DeMeo fronted the cash, and Christopher would move the product. Unfortunately, Christopher introduced some of his friends to Roy, leading them to join the blossoming crew of criminals as well. The group quickly added members Joseph Testa, Anthony Center, and Joseph's sibling Patrick Testa. Now these guys sound like they could be made men. Oh, the, these the, guys were Italian. Some of these guys, those some of those people right there, they have they have like cases for them, like just yeah. in like the mafia crime logs and stuff. Right, like the, right. Those two brothers, I think, are like absolute psychos. They go down. They have like yes. a long history together as well. But what's funny is Joseph Testa and Anthony Center actually looked similar. Mm-hmm. They looked. They were actually, I think, called the Gemini Twins, yes. named after the club, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting, especially since Testa had a brother. But Anthony Center just looked so much like Tess. Like, they were kind of like the same build, I guess, about the same age, probably. Yeah. So, But uh, another member, Joseph Dracula Guglielmo. You're Guglielmo? Guglielmo? Yeah. Uh, who happened to be DeMeo's cousin, would also join the Bloodthirsty Gang and would set up in an apartment in the Gemini Lounge. Do you know what kind of guy you got to be in like an Italian mafia crew to get the nickname Dracula at this time? You got to be pretty brutal. You got to be pretty bloodthirsty. Well, you either got to be really bloodthirsty or just like the creepiest, palest cousin that they only see at night. Maybe his fashion was just really outdated and he was pale. He was just like the goth kid from like- He's still wearing butterfly collars and shit. He's just uh, just like, uh, what's the uh, the guy from uh, the IT crowd just walking around all goth? (laughs) He's an energy vampire. Like, why is he out of his room? Get back in your room, Dracula. Right. But after slowly starting to build up his crew of eventual sociopaths and gaining a bit of power in the area through his extensive loan shark deals, Roy began to establish himself as a real player in the lower levels of organized crime. And as the decade came to a close, DeMeo and his crew would just be getting started. So let's talk more about this uh, Gemini Lounge. 
Oh, can we? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, De little House of Horrors. Like, we've had a few House of Horrors references over the last few episodes, Andy. Yeah, at least this one had a liquor license. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to numb some of this shit. At least they had to walk in there. At least, at least the cops could walk in and be like, I'm going to need a shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think cops were allowed in this bar. Yeah, it's like, I mean, afterwards, it's like when the cops oh, walk yeah, in yeah. to investigate, it's like, oof. Yeah, you want to just go ahead and crack that seal. I'm yep. going to need some. <laughs> yep. Go ahead and pop the good stuff. Uh, but there is some debate over who was the first to fall victim to Roy's violent tendencies, with some sources listing the owner of a pornography business named Paul Rothenberg as the first unfortunate soul to meet their end at the hands of DeMeo, while others list a local body shop owner, Andre Katz, as the victim of Roy's first murder. Andre Katz is probably the first one you will find in, mm-hmm. most, of your, in most of your searches. His name comes up quite a bit. His was a bit more of a public death, and they they yes. had like some public feuding together, and they were they already had a little bit of tension and stuff. Exactly. So yeah, the Rosenberg Rothenberg Rothenberg. He was found shot behind a diner. So it's right. like they, it could be, but you know maybe not. Right, right, right. Like Andy said, Rothenberg was found behind a diner in 1973. Now we do know that Katz was the first victim to meet the gruesome end that DeMeo and his crew would later become infamous for. Okay, that's at the Gemini Lounge. Mm-hmm. Katz had partnered with Roy and his gang to help them with their stolen cars, and the relationship had become strained over several months. So Katz decided he was going to snitch to the police about Roy and his gang's involvement in the car theft ring. Bad Always idea. a good idea. Always no, a good idea no, to Andy, snitch on the, <laughs> on the psycho serial killer hitman. Right. It's like, how is it becoming strained? Yeah. Right. I just don't get how you're, man, the audacity of this guy. Uh, but once Roy was tipped off by one of the local cops on his payroll about the betrayal, the choice was made to remove their problem permanently. And on June 13th, 1975, Katz was lured into an apartment complex underneath the guise of a date by a female acquaintance of the crew. Now, upon arriving, however, Katz was attack, attacked and abducted by DeMeo and his men and was taken to the meat department of a supermarket in Queens. This part is like, this is, it's not the Gemini Lounge This is before they got the Gemini Lounge, but it's the same technique. Oh yeah, but it's just like, that is so like eerie of a mob hit to just like get kidnapped and you wake up in like a fucking supermarket butcher shop. That is like Scarface right there. And you know locals know what supermarket that is. Oh yeah. So I'm saying it's just like, that's like a Scarface scene. Just waking up like, you know, hands tied to the meat hook or something. Oh my gosh. Oh God. Yeah, seriously. So in the first of many gruesome murders, Andre was repeatedly stabbed in the heart and back with a butcher knife. After the vicious stabbing, DeMeo would decapitate his victim and proceed to mutilate the head by pushing it through a cardboard box compactor. He was thorough. Let's let's put it that way. Then the dismembered remains were carefully packed into plastic bags, ultimately being disposed of in the dumpster of the same supermarket. Several days later, a man walking his dog stumbled upon one of Kat's legs lying near the store. I've also heard that it was a homeless man. I've heard, yeah, it was somebody. I mean, I guess it could be a homeless man with a dog. Yeah, it was just somebody who was walking a dog nearby because I feel like the dog probably ran over and saw it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you put that leg into a dumpster, those New York rats are fucking massive. They've been that. They brought that leg back out of the dumpster. Yeah, but one way or another, a a very concerned citizen noticed the bags as well and did inform the police. Uh, Roy's special technique for disposing of the dead would come to be known as the Gemini Method, as we referred to earlier, named after the infamous bar owned by DeMeo, which he considered his headquarters. Now, the steps of the Gemini Method involved luring the target to the apartment located at the rear of the lounge through one of the side doors. From there, a crew member, mostly DeMeo, would approach the victim with a silenced pistol. With the gun in one hand and a towel in the other, 
the victim would be shot in the head, and then the towel would be immediately wrapped around the wound to start absorbing the blood. Then another crew member, usually Christopher, his right-hand man, would deliver a fatal stab to the victim's heart to prevent further blood circulation. This is very, like, it starts becoming, like, Dexter-esque. Like, they get to a it is. science it is. about it. and It like, is technical. Yeah, it's very, like, methodical. It's, like, calculated. It's medical. Yep. Like, to, to know to stab the heart to, to stop the blood flow. Exactly. Like, exactly. they are... They are scientific about it. And also their disposal methods, they went a lot further. They didn't just throw them in the uh, in the dumpster to be found. Yeah. And to be, they got a little more thorough with that. So at this point, the body would then be undressed and drug into the bathroom and placed into the tub. There, any remaining blood would either be drained or congealed within the body, ensuring cleanliness. Now, this process apparently made dismemberment much easier. Uh, the severed limbs would then all be packed into bags, carefully sealed within cardboard boxes, and then transported straight to the Fountain Avenue dump located in Brooklyn. And as you guys could imagine, due to the ungodly amount of trash that was dumped in there every single day, none of those victims were ever discovered. You know, unless they wanted them to be. Oh, there yeah. were There were some victims who were left as a message, but... We'll get to that. Any of the ones that made any of the body parts that made it that dump, they tried to do like a, a legit like FBI search and try to dig through some of that. It became they were just like, this is too costly. It's too much. We'll never find it. Yeah, they yeah. had to just give up. But yeah, there was plenty of victims that would be left as a public message that needed to be seen. Yep. So throughout the early 70s, DeMeo and his crew began taking on sanctioned murder contracts on behalf of the Gambino crime family, usually obtained through Roy's earlier contact. Anthony Gaggy, who was in close with the Gambino crime family. Uh, DeMeo would continue to use his underworld connections to try and further his own criminal enterprise there in Brooklyn. Roy would compile an extensive criminal network of his own right in his neighborhood, one that was built around auto theft, drugs, and of course, murder. But one of these things was not as widely accepted in mob cultures around this time. I'll give you one guess. <laughs> it's not murder. Yeah, it's not the, <laughs> it's it's not not the one you think it is. Nope. It's the drugs. It's, it's the drugs. It's the drugs because they're above that. How dare you? Uh, the mafia had built their empire off the backs of legitimate businesses, in their opinion. White-collar crime. And, yeah, the occasional murder or two. Hey, what, are at, do? what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But at the time, drugs were considered beneath them and not an acceptable form of income. But Roy's moral compass was set so low, he honestly had to look up to see drugs. Like, oh, yeah. He didn't give a fuck. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's a uh, good idea. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, heroin. Hey, people like this shit. Uh, but luckily for DeMeo and his crew, a major change was about to occur that would set the Gemini crew up for some significant business opportunities. You know some, what I mean, Andy? Got some good offers you know, coming in. We got, some, we got some things on the table. And in 1976, the head of the Gambino crime family, Carlo Gambino, passed away due to natural causes. In his place, Paul Castellano would assume the role of boss. Now, this meant two things for DeMeo. His friend and mentor, Anthony Gaggi, was promoted to the position of capo, taking charge of the group that Castellano oversaw. And with the death of Carlo Gambino, it meant that new individuals were now eligible for membership, giving DeMeo his opening to finally become a made man. Uh, Castellano didn't love the idea of bringing DeMeo into the family, really. He, he wanted to try to push the family more into white-collar crime and stay out of the streets. You know, that was kind of, the streets were kind of DeMeo's hotspot. However, it was his prior connections in the Westy Gambino alliance that persuaded Castellano to bestow DeMeo with his button, 
officially accepting him into the Gambino crime family. Now, in the middle of 1977, DeMeo was now a made man and responsible for overseeing all family affairs with the Westies. So that was like another gang that he apparently yeah. knew and be, and literally they were about to have like a big conflict and he was one of the few guys who was like, I think I can go talk to them. Right. I, I know yeah. a guy over there. And they literally, he, he kind of quelled or stopped a war before it happened. And they were like, okay, fine. I guess you are good for something. <laughs> right. It is kind of amazing that like such a ruthless killer was also, you know, a negotiator in this sense. Yeah. He was it's able like to he, actually bring them to the table. Right. Yeah. He had enough charm to fool a lot of people. Yeah, you can't. You don't get that many contracts just because you're good. You gotta be able to talk to somebody. Too. That's right. That's right. Additionally, he received explicit instructions to seek approval before committing any more hits and to stay away from selling drugs. Of course, despite this warning, DeMeo and his crew would continue to engage in the large-scale sales of marijuana, cocaine, and pills. But in 1978, Christopher would find himself at the center of a drug deal gone wrong. This is very, very Scarface to me. Yeah. This whole scene, I was just like, oh, Tony, Tony Montana over here, yep. trying to get too big for his britches. Yep. During a cocaine deal with some Cubans, Christopher would kill his Cuban connection and proceeded to steal the money and all the cocaine that they had brought with them. Unfortunately for Christopher, the Cuban individual he murdered had direct connections to a no notorious Colombian cartel. This, in turn, led to an intense situation between the Colombians and the Gambino crime family. It's like, where do you think these Cubans were getting all this cocaine from at the time, Christopher? Right, yeah. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't Cuba. <laughs> yeah, not a smart move, Chris. Uh, with the two on the verge of war, the only solution was that Christopher had to go. Roy was finding every reason he could not to off Christopher and growing more paranoid in the meantime. So paranoid, in fact, that he would chase down and murder an innocent 18-year-old vacuum cleaner salesman in broad daylight. This is so sad. And DeMeo actually did show remorse for this. Oh, yeah. He, he, this he actually kind of broke him. Yeah, this kind of messed with him. Uh, DeMeo noticed Dominic Raguchi parked outside his home one day and immediately assumed that he was a cartel assassin. He and his crew jumped in their car and started chasing him, with DeMeo and Joseph Guglielmo hanging out the windows, firing at Dominic who is no doubt got to be shitting his pants right now. But for whatever happened, whether the car took too many bullets or had finally had enough, when Dominic's car finally came to a stop, DeMeo was the one to walk up to the window and executed him with seven shots. Yeah, this was not a quick like, no, private no, or like this was public and scary. Absolutely. This was a crime of passion right here. DeMeo oh, yeah. was at his wit's end. He was paranoid. He was on edge, and he saw this guy sitting out in front of the house. Actually, what happened is he got home, and his wife said that there was a vacuum cleaner salesman who knocked on the door, and he had been around in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that's all she had to say. And he's like, where is he? And there he was, and yeah, that's it. Like I said, this guy, he, he chased him for like seven miles. Like, like, them, like he, That's like yes. a Grand Theft Auto scene of them like hanging out the car, shooting. It's, it's an intense scene. It is, it's insane. But Roy was now convinced that the cartel was certainly after him, and DeMeo sped back home and collected his family. He drove them far from New York and temporarily put them in a hotel out of state. With the murder of an innocent man on his hands and the growing tension between the Colombians and the Gambinos, Roy was left with no other options. In May of 1979, Christopher would be called to a meeting at the Gemini Lounge like countless others before him, but with apparently no knowledge of the order out for his death. Upon entering, Christopher was met face-to-face -face with Roy, holding his silenced pistol in hand. With a single shot to the head, Christopher fell to the ground, but he wasn't dead. 
Attempting to stand back up after being shot, Roy stood frozen, and before Christopher could make it to his feet, another member of the crew stepped in and finished the job, since Roy just couldn't pull the trigger a second time. Yeah, normally he would have Christopher, when he would execute people, he would have Christopher immediately step in with that knife. Right. And I guess that this was more of like a personal thing, so nobody really stepped in to do the normal method. So he kind of shot him, and everybody just kind of watched. And then Christopher did not die until somebody else had to come in and be like, oh, sorry, yeah. This wasn't going to be a Gemini method execution. That's the life. You run with the dogs, you get the fleas, man. Christopher's body wouldn't be dismembered and disposed of like most of the other victims of the DeMeo crew. He had to be placed somewhere that his body could be found, like we alluded to earlier. You see, the Colombians wanted to have proof that this debt had been paid. After the death of Christopher, former associates and even family members of DeMeo would say that Roy was never quite the same. Through the next couple of years, DeMeo didn't seem to have quite the same spark that he once had, but that didn't stop him from continuing to grow his own operations. I mean, he's got nothing to lose now, right? You might as well stick with it. Yeah, now he's now he probably thinks he's like, well, that's the worst that could happen. What's what's next? I guess yeah. my death. Yeah, <laughs> at that point, you don't you probably don't think about. It. You're like, well, I can't. They're not going to make me kill my actual family, are they? Right. Yeah, right, he's right. just he's just kind of going on autopilot now. Exactly. But the DeMeo crew would continue to take contracted hits from the Gambino family over the next few years. But a large amount of the group's efforts would go towards stealing and selling exotic cars. Even the FBI had their eye on this crew. Coined the Empire Boulevard operation, the DeMeo crew was shipping hundreds of stolen cars out of New Jersey and bringing in roughly 30000 a week in pure profits. Basically what they were doing was they were stealing um, like uh, exotic cars, Mercedes, BMWs, Audis, uh, whatever they could get their hands on, Lambos, and they were selling them, shipping them to Kuwait. They had Mm -hmm. to connect in in Kuwait, and apparently they just don't give a shit about the paperwork. They're going to make up their own paperwork when the cars come in over there, and they could sell these cars for ridiculously low prices, right, at $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 It just depends on what it was, right? But they would sell 10 to 15 cars a week. Mm -hmm. They were moving them quick. I'm serious. Like, $30,000 is low. They were making more than that. And that's I really that's do in, think they were making more. Like 1979, 1980, $30,000 a week. It's that's pretty good profit that's insane. At that time too. It's insane. It's insane now. They but, say they I were mean, moving them so fast. Have you ever seen that one? There's a mob guy who does a lot of videos. He's a motivational speaker named like Michael Franzese. Oh yeah, yeah. He, I've he seen tells, his videos. Uh, he yeah. tells a story about meeting Roy DeMeo and Roy actually stole two of his cars one day. Yeah, the two Jaguars. He's like he called Roy. He's like, yeah. "Roy, I think you got two of my Jaguars down there." He's like, "Hold on, hold on. <laughs> hold on, let me check the numbers." Yeah, we got to all your Jaguars yeah. down here. <laughs> how, how attached to those rims were you? Uh, you, uh, you really like that, that sound system in there? Because, uh, I, I mean, I, I, mean I, can, I can get you a new one. I can get I can, you a <laughs> that one's That one's gone. I, I think we can fix the hood damage. Yeah, don't worry about it. All right, so during the height of this car theft ring, in late 1979, Roy would be involved in the killings of James Eppolito and his son, a murder that he committed with his mentor and current boss, Anthony Gaggy. But during the attack, the two men split up and fled the scene. But Gaggy was stopped by a police officer, and there was a shootout. After being shot by police and arrested, Gaggy would end up in prison, which in turn would leave DeMeo without his only real form of support in the Gambino family. He did try to rescue like Gaggy or try and get him out. I think they said that uh, there was a witness to the shootout, and would like as soon as after the trial ended, our, that witness disappeared. 
So, uh-huh. I bet. Yeah, because Gaggy did get out of prison event like not too long afterwards, but it was like during right after the trial, it was like, where'd that witness go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Disappeared, man. I guess he left. He moved. What luck. Uh, but during 1982, the FBI was involved in an investigation into the startling number of individuals that had gone missing, all of whom were connected to DeMeo or had been last spotted entering the Gemini Lounge. It was during this period that the FBI, having placed a bug in the residence of Angelo Ruggiero, a soldier in the Gambino family, he intercept, they intercepted a conversation between Angelo and Gene Gotti, brother of, uh, of course, John Gotti. But the recording reveals Castellano's attempt to arrange the murder of DeMeo. However, he was having trouble finding anyone up for the task, as you could imagine. Uh, Gene Gotti mentions that his brother John was even nervous about accepting the contract due to DeMeo constantly being surrounded by a crew of deranged killers. His words. <laughs> yeah, you want to go try uh, to kill the devil in hell? That's right. Kinda like, that's the mentality of it. Yeah, right. Just walk right up in that Gemini lounge, see what happens. But at that point, John had already killed 10 men, while DeMeo's body count was close to 40, allegedly. Eventually, an informant states that the contract was assigned to Frank DeChico, but he and his crew were also unsuccessful in whacking DeMeo. Allegedly, uh, DeChico was able to pass the hit along to DeMeo's own crew, an inside job. I feel like they, they do kind of talk about it. It kind of turned into like a, they kind of almost threatened his crew. It's like either you guys take this guy out or you're all, you all got to exactly. go. Exactly. So exactly. It's a lesser of two evils kind of situation. It, absolutely. And at this point, Roy was really starting to feel the pressure of everything that he had done over the past decade. During his last days, family members state that he was sick with paranoia and even considered attempting to fake his own death to try and escape the inevitable. Yeah, he was going to ask his son to like shoot him and like take pictures so it looked like his yeah. body was in the house or whatever. That's it's not a bad idea. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. According to the book Murder Machine, the author states that in his final days, DeMeo walked around constantly with a shotgun hidden beneath his leather jacket and was always on high alert. And on January 10th, 1983, DeMeo visited crew member Patrick Testa's body shop for a scheduled meeting with his team. And that would be the last time that anyone would ever see Roy DeMeo alive. Several days later, on January 18th, his body was discovered in the trunk of his abandoned vehicle with a chandelier placed on top of his chest. Forensic evidence revealed multiple gunshot wounds to the head and one to his hand, probably a defense wound. There have been multiple theories and claims as to what actually happened to Roy DeMeo when he entered that body shop. But the fact is that the Butcher of Brooklyn was no more. Yeah, there was something, there was like a lot of claim, even like the Iceman, like Kuklinski, he claimed that he killed uh, DeMeo. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh yeah, I did this, yada, 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 I claimed this. And everybody's like, yeah, nobody can back that up. He's the only one who makes that claim. Right, None of the right. other higher-ups are like, yeah, we hired Kuklinski. He's just to, trying to pad his own resume. He's just trying to talk. Exactly. He's in jail for life, right? Yeah, like, he's like I said, he's just padding his own resume, trying to make himself look even more scary. But I mean, well, the fact that they found his body is one thing, but it's like, was he recognizable? Or were there so many shots to the face that he was unrecognizable? Because... You know, that that could have been faked. Yeah, they in could a way, have been, that but... could have been faked. I mean, and what's with the chandelier? What's, I think what's up with was, the chandelier? Dude? They said he was apparently supposed to have that fixed. He was supposed to like take it somewhere to get it fixed that day or something. And they used it as like a weight to make sure his body didn't like swell. Or I don't know. It was something weird like that. But they just like sat it on top of him and like weighed him down with it in his car. Man, must have been some chandelier. But in 1984, a 78-count indictment was filed against 24 defendants, which included the surviving members of the DeMeo crew, members of the Gambino crime family, and Paul Castellano, the boss of the whole organization, of course. 
The charges included the involvement in auto theft, racketeering, and drug trafficking activities. Notably, Paul Castellano was indicted for orchestrating the murder of DeMeo as well. However, while out on bail during the first trial, Castellano was killed in an unsanctioned hit in December of 1985. The assassination was given under the orders of John Gotti in what has been described as a ruthless power grab, thus giving rise to Gotti as the new boss of the Gambino family. Like I said, we got to do a whole it's, story on, on Gotti, man. That dude is ruthless. It, seriously, it's almost like DeMeo was keeping Gotti at bay. It's I mean, like you killed your wolf, and now wolves came and got you. You don't have the butcher to protect you anymore. No, you do not. And that's how it ends, you guys, with the story of Roy DeMeo, one of the most prolific and most brutal mafia hitman to ever walk the streets of New York. I mean, God, after doing this case, we definitely realize we got to do some more mob guys in the future. There's there's so many characters in this, and we've already done so many with like a Skinny Razor and Tommy Karate. You did, um, did Capone. Capone. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so many, but yeah, this the mob stuff is fun. It is. You can make a lot more jokes. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. It's a little bit lighter of a topic because you don't have it. You don't have as much of the like sadism or the mm-hmm. the like the secret motives or like the sexual crimes it's not as much it's more business it's like a it's right, an organized right, right. business and even most of the mob's killings are generally pretty quick it's like a t- double tap to the back of the head you're gone right you know you don't have as many of the sick individuals but then you find somebody like this guy well Who's killing possibly 200 people. There's some interviews from other mobsters, right, that knew Roy. And they claimed that he would say things like, I kill this often because I got to keep my guys sharp. Mm-hmm. He's like, don't you do that? You know, you know, most of these guys deserve it anyways. You know, they he would just pick, sometimes he would just pick a random person who was at the bar, at the Gemini bar, invite them into the back room, into the back apartment or whatever to play cards mm-hmm. or to gamble. Be like, hey, you seem like a fun guy. Why don't you come on back? Shot to the head immediately coming through the door. Yeah, he would kill like, anybody who owed him money, anybody who crossed him, and, anybody who may have like had an incident with somebody else. Like right. he was not he was not discriminatory about who he killed. And honestly, even though his disposal methods were brutal, he didn't torture people that we know of. I mean, I'm sure he has mm-hmm. had had instances. I mean, you don't kill people like this and never torture anyone. There was a time where Roy needed to get information. Oh yeah, right? there was probably plenty of those times, and some of those bodies um, that needed to be left to be found, some of those yeah. ones that needed to send a message. Some yeah. of those aren't as clean. They're not as it's right. not just a shot and a stab. It's pretty brutal sometimes. Right, but the majority of his hits were, you know, silence pistol to the head, knife to the heart. It's over within seconds. Mm-hmm. It's over. But um, not to not to say that that makes this guy any better or anything. But um, yeah, like I said, you don't have some of the same like darkness to it. You don't have some of that same like. <sighs> Just eerie feelings of like, oh, this yeah. is gross. It's like you, those guys compartmentalize that life so much. No, I hear it's, you. Andy. It's not a good night, sugar babe case. Yeah, it's not something it's like the, that. It's the it's like the, they compartmentalize their lives so much yeah, that it's yeah. easier for us to compartmentalize the cases to an extent. Yeah, well put, Andy. Yeah. Well put. Plus, we don't we don't sweat as much while we're doing these things. It's not as just nerve wracking. <laughs> don't <laughs> right. got a don't, don't got a nice like just stank brewing in here. No, we well we never do, Andy, and you know that you know why that is. I think I have a pretty good idea. You have a pretty good idea. I do, Michael. It's, you tell it's our secret weapon, dude. It's oh my Gaia. Oh my Gaia. That's right. I keep it right here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I keep in it both right pits. here. No one's ever gonna know if I have it. No one's ever gonna That's care, right, guys. If you haven't heard the news, you need to be switching to an all-natural deodorant, something that's aluminum-free, that's paraben-free, and oh my Gaia, 
they got you covered, I promise you. Oh My Guy is an innovative, all-natural deodorant fragrance and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while still maintaining effectiveness. And like I said, at Oh My Guy, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients in every single scent they make. I need to get a big trench coat for this. As well. I need to get a big yeah. trench coat for this next bit. So every yeah. time you start listening, I'm going to be like, duh, 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 yeah. duh, 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 duh. like I'm selling cheap Rolexes need, in New York. We need, we need to hit up Wendy until we need one of everything. You need a trench coat uh, with pockets. <laughs> like, I'm, like I said, like I'm selling cheap Rolexes. Right. Just start juggling them during the end. Uh, but guys, like I, like I said, there's tons of scents like vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, bergamot, amber, pear, sweet pea, sailor, barbershop. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> and of course, true crime pine, guys. If you don't know where to start, start right there. It's a perfect scent for the fall. It's a perfect unisex scent regardless of who you are. You'll smell great for the holidays, I promise you. And because you're a True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the code word CREEPER for 15% off your order. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R for 15% off your order. Or you can go to shop underscore OhMyGaia on Instagram or OhMyGaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. And again, guys, don't forget to use code word CREEPER for 15% off. And tell Wendy over there the True Crime Guys sent you. All right, give us a, give her a follow on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well, so you guys will be up to date anytime new products hit the store. Mm-hmm. All right. Also, guys, don't forget to check out Patreon. If you like what we do here at True Crime Guys Productions, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It is the wheels of this podcast. Patreon.com/slash True Crime Guys where honestly we got a free trial going on right now guys on the two dollar tier you can get a free trial for seven days okay but fair warning we are ending this free trial on january 1st it'll Mm -hmm. end at the end of this year i think we've had these free trials for at least probably close to a year now honestly at least six months i think at least six okay Mm -hmm. it's it's been a long time that we've offered these free trials so uh, we are going to have to stop that at some point in time guys so we're going to stop that january 1st uh after that It'd be two bucks a month to get access to every Patreon exclusive um, and so many other things, just the banter and so many other things on that $2 tier. And then on the $5 tier, you get access to every other collection that we have on Patreon, including Sandu Stories, our audio theater show, um, Higher Thoughts, um, Just the Banter, Strange Shorts, uh, so many five-minute murders with Lorne, um, and those have video with them as well. So guys, there's so much, there's hundreds hundreds of audio files on Patreon right now waiting for you anytime you want. Again, that's patreon.com slash true crime guys. Check the link right below here. And of course, if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Uh, If you are listening, if you're listening on podcast platform, wherever, please run over to YouTube real quick, hit that subscribe button for us, guys. That would help us out so much with the show. Um, and we have merch guys right below the link of the description. There is a true crime guys link tree, everything true crime guys. Okay. We have merch, everything from coffee mugs to t-shirts in all sorts of designs dating all the way back to early 2017. And we also have music available on Spotify, Apple music, uh, YouTube music. You can use it on your social media stories, whatever. Just search True Crime Guys as an artist, and you'll see we have two albums out. One's Truths and Tragedies, one is Killer Mixtape, and then I've also released a single called Shotgun Blast that was the uh, the intro to our uh, episode we just did, Andy. Help me out, I'm drawing a blank The Stephen and Celeste Beard? The Stephen and Celeste Beard episode. I did a song called Shotgun Blast. That single is also available wherever you listen to music. 
All right, Andy, am I forgetting anything else? I don't think so, Michael. I think you should remind everybody that next week on TCG, we will be on Patreon that for is our, our uh, Patreon-exclusive episode. Yes. So if you're going to be watching on YouTube or listening on the free platform, we will be back with headlines and shenanigans to kind of fill that yep. gap for you. But if anybody's looking for the new story, the new episode, we will be back on Patreon next week with one more kind of look at a different kind of cult episode. Yes. We got one more kind of gritty Southern cult we're going to take a look at before mm-hmm. we kind of dive into a few other things later down the line. Right on. Way to go, Andy. I almost forgot about Patreon week already. It sneaks up on you. It really does. It does. It's that time of the month again, Michael. It's like you realize your months go by with every Patreon episode, and you're like, wow, 12 of these is a year. Oh, my God. What 24 the of these is two years. What happened to the time? <laughs> Where did but the time anyways, guys, go? Uh, thank you so much for watching, for listening, wherever you are. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for allowing us to do this. And guys, we'll see you next week, uh, like uh, Andy said, with headlines and shenanigans here on the free platform. And we'll see you on Patreon for some cult shit. All right, until then, keep on creeping. Bye. Just want to get into like, woke up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could probably cover, uh, I mean, you could do a cover of the Sopranos music. Yeah, why not? It'd be kind of fun. I mean. Do like a beatbox version. Maybe I did a cover. Who knows? Yeah, do a beatbox version. A spoken word poem. Do a Hank Williams version. Like I said, do a spoken word Sopranos intro. Woke up this morning. I got myself a gun. A gun? A gun. You didn't never let me copy your map homework. And now you got blood all over my car. Oh, Trapper Keeper. This is not cool, Roy. Not cool at all.